On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Ontario budget and the huge amounts of money involved, although not surprisingly. We're talking about the possibility of a coffee shortage. Yes, I know. That will terrify you. The billions of dollars in the budget, not so much. No coffee? Frightening. We'll talk about that. And we're going to talk about the situation the NHL finds itself in now with a referee who was mic'd up talking about looking to give penalties against a certain team. It is a troubling and confusing, though probably predictable, comment. We'll talk about whether or not it means anything and what that might be. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Today was Provincial Budget Day and it, you know, budgets, goodies for all. Everybody gets something. It's like going to the Oprah show. Everybody gets a car. You get a car and you get, well, you don't get cars necessarily. Especially now, we're supposed to not have cars or only electric cars, but that's a side note. We won't talk about that today. But yes, lots of spending. Uh, The short form of the story is this, that um, the Ontario government is going to spend $186.1 billion this year. Now, that's actually down a little bit, but nonetheless, it's a lot of money. Uh, It means a lot of debt, $100 billion in new debt and deficits. Debt and deficits, well, debt will go on longer than this, but deficits running till at least 2029. Now a projected new provincial debt of $440 billion. But we are in COVID and that surely has affected these numbers and what the government decided to do. Uh, Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Dr. Lee, thanks for being here. Very much appreciate it today. My pleasure. Uh, I, I do not have a comprehensive list. I think I would have had to pay closer attention than I did, and I thought I was paying okay attention. But uh, healthcare, a lot of money for healthcare, uh, big money for tourism, big money for businesses, families, long-term care, the environment, yeah. domestic violence, indigenous issues, special needs, on and on and on. Was there something in there that was a highlight or highlights or things that really stood out to you? Well, the, 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 the big one, I think it was pretty obvious, it was inevitable, was more money into healthcare, of course. Uh, long-term care homes, you know, um, more money for the vaccination and testing. Uh, but the, I mean, the number that stood out for me is is the deficit. I mean, the debt, I should say. Um, I mean, it, it's it's just going, it's gargantuan. And uh, yes, yes, I understand we're in the middle of this crisis, and yes, we have to do it. But that doesn't change the reality that when we come out of it, we're going to be facing a lot, uh, you know, larger a debt. And uh, the one thing I did want to note, because we're told over and over, you know, interest rates aren't going up, so this is really essentially free money. Interest rate, interest spending will not increase. But I went and looked at the item in the Ontario budget today, and you know the one, the one that jumped out, and this is with absolutely no interest rate increases, the interest on the debt as a percentage of revenue in two years has gone from 8% to 8.7%. And this is at a time when interest rates are not going up. Now, of course, it's increased the, the percent. So before people uh, get confused on this, what I'm saying is the amount, the percentage that we're actually paying in interest on the debt is going up because the debt is getting bigger. If you borrow more money, guess what? Even if the rate interest rate doesn't change, you know, you borrow $1,000 and the interest rate is 10%, you pay 100 bucks. But if you borrow $10,000, you see my point. So what's happened is this is the crisis that we ran into in the mid-'80s and on into the 90s, where the debt and the, uh, the, the deficits were added each year, and the debt was compounding. 
it was getting bigger. You know, the, the you know the proverbial rat on the treadmill or the hamster on the treadmill has got to run faster and faster to stand still. And remember, the Ontario government does not have a printing press. It does not have a Bank of Canada. The, you know, the federal government has a printing press. Sovereign national governments have a printing press. They can literally print the money. Provinces don't have that luxury. They've got to go to real bond markets and convince people, real people that have real money, to buy those bonds. I'm not suggesting there's a problem right now, but they're going, we're going from the debt as a percentage of GDP in Ontario from 39%, where I, which many thought was very high. We're, in two years now, we're going to be at 50%. And a couple and so, points on that. And a couple points on that, because, I mean, it's, it's a great point you bring up here. First of all, when you talk about the interest rates, the government in the budget today did talk about the interest rates because they are anticipating their interest rates doubling by yes. 2023 that they have to pay on their debt, which yes. brings us up to we're going to be paying almost $15 billion a year oh, just yes. to service our debt, money we are flushing down the toilet. It's an yep. astonishing amount of money. It is, and and when you consider that we are moving into an era where uh, my generation, the boomers, are moving into retirement, and this is this isn't a theory, this isn't an opinion. Uh, Stats Canada is showing the data very very clearly. We're going to go in the next several years from 12 percent of the population over 65 years of age. I'm one of them to over 25%. People say, so what? You get older. Sure. Except that older people pay lower taxes. They're, they've retired. Their incomes are lower. So the income flowing into the Treasury is going to be going down because there's less people working paying uh, when they're peak earning years when you pay the maximum taxes. But even more importantly, as we get older, and I'm Exhibit A for this, you know, as you get older, your body starts to wear out. And you use the health care system a lot more. When I was 20, 30, 40, I don't think I ever went and saw a doctor. And now, you know, as you get older, you know, the knees are going, you know, and the hips are going, and, and there's all kinds of aches and pains. And so as a consequence, and the data, again, is very clear on this, older people consume vastly greater amounts per person, per person. And we're going to double the, uh, a, a, the elderly population from 12% to 25% at a very time when the economy, for as far as the eye can see, is slowing down because of the aging. And our debt percentage and dollars is going up, 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 up. So I think down the road, we're going to be facing hitting, I, I believe, and I don't mean tomorrow morning. I don't mean in a year from now. But I think in the not-too-distant future, we may be hitting a wall similar to what the federal government did back in 1995. Whether it's in two years, three years, four years, five years, yet to be seen. It really depends on what the bond markets do. Will they continue to buy the bonds of the government of Ontario, or will they say, like they did already, to Newfoundland and Labrador, they, the bond markets have stopped buying their bonds. They said their, two, their credit risk, credit rating is so bad, their credit risk is so high, that they will no longer buy the bonds of that government because it's so indebted. Ontario's Let- not there yet. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I get that we're in COVID. I know we have to spend the money and all that kind of stuff, but I just don't think that really most people have any concept of just how much money we owe right now. I agree. Um, by 2024, we're going to owe almost half a trillion, which is just under 25% of the totality of Canada's economy. And we're only one province, remember. We're, we're, not, we're not all 10 provinces. We're one province. And we're going to owe just under $500 billion, which is a half a trillion, which is 25% of GDP. But the, the bigger issue, uh, uh, point I want to make, it's really important because people say, ah, oh, don't get your knickers. And no, it's not. This is money, you know. And look, the federal government, look, they've got money. They, you know, they, they, they can do it. We cannot think like that. 
you know, the, 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 the city of Toronto, the city of Hamilton, does not have a printing press. The government of Ontario does not have a printing press. My university does not have a printing press. Laurentian University, that just went bankrupt, thank you, everybody, they are facing layoffs. They're going to be laying people off because they've run out of runway. They don't have any more borrowing room, and they don't have anybody willing to, 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 to save them. And, I mean, the, the, and so my point being that, well, the federal government, many, many of your listeners saying, look, the federal government runs up big deficits. What's the big deal? They can get away with it. A sovereign nation with a printing press called the National Central Bank can do it. The United States government can do it. But state governments cannot do it. In fact, that's why the city of Detroit went bankrupt, and Illinois, the, the state of Illinois, is so precarious, uh, like, like Ontario. And what I'm saying is sooner or later, we're going to hit a wall where the bond markets will say, you know what, I'm not going to buy your bonds anymore, pension funds, corporations with large amounts of money, because no government can order or compel somebody to buy bonds or buy any investment. They cannot and, and, order the Carleton University pension plan to go buy the bonds of the government of Ontario. And, and so if you hit that wall where the bond market stopped buying, as happened with Newfoundland and Labrador, then you are really, really in, in a mm. trouble because then you've got to start laying people off. And it's, at that point, you don't have the leisureness of time. You've got to do it like overnight because you're facing a crisis. Here's the thing that, that becomes so difficult about this budget. As I said a moment ago, we are in an, a very unusual, a very difficult situation with COVID. We've got health issues to deal with. We've got businesses that are going under. I mean, we have to, I guess, I mean, I don't even think I guess, we have to spend money now to try and wade our way through this thing. But it really does seem to me that this message that is now being sent to us is how much better a job we should have been doing when things were good to not, you know, if we had to get a hundred billion dollars in debt now, yeah, you know, that's not good, but that's a hundred billion. But because we spent our brains out when times were good, we now have something that is so out of control, we can't do anything about it. This is the argument I've been making for years and years, is, is that people say, hey, we can afford the deficits. And I said, yes, but why would you squander, squander scarce resources when times are good? We were running deficits when the economy was running flat out. I remember during the McGinty years and, and also uh, Kathleen McKenna, and they were uh, running uh, 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 you know, really big deficits. And I, I kept saying, why are we wasting this money when there's no crisis? There's no recession. There's no pan. I didn't know pandemic, but uh, I said there was no need for this. And all we're doing is using up wiggle room or using up degrees of freedom. Instead of saving it for the rainy day, when the rainy day comes, and it's now come, by the way, then you really do have to spend the money. And, um, and, and that's the mistake, I think, we, we squandered and wasted so much money in the good times that it is really uh, constraining us now um, in this, uh, and as we go forward. What happens if another recession hits in three or four or five years when we have a half a trillion dollars in debt? And so I do believe that the day of reckoning is coming. It hasn't arrived. It's not coming tomorrow morning. I'm not predicting that. I am saying, though, it's going to happen in our lifetimes. And I don't mean in 50 or 100 years. I mean in three or four or five or six years, I think we could be seeing us hitting a, 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 a wall, a debt wall, uh, not that dissimilar to what Greece ran into mm. and some other oh. sovereign nations. Yeah, we only have a few seconds left, and I have so many more things I wish I could ask, but it was made very clear by the finance minister right off the bat today that the goal was to do two things. It was to protect people's health, which is costly, and to protect the environment. Truly, can both of those things coexist? 
uh, sorry, not the environment, the economy, the health and the economy. Right. Pardon I, me. I think we're going to have to be much more surgical and targeted and say, look, we're going to help you if, you know, we're not going to let anybody starve. Of course not. That goes without saying. But I don't know if we can have the resources to, to, to cover everybody's loss. We want to ensure that they can, you know, cover their rent, of course, or their mortgage and their groceries. But I, I think the idea that we're trying to save and protect people from any loss caused by the pandemic is, is something that I don't think we have the capacity to do. Let me put it in a slightly different way that most people will understand. We're going to have to start triaging. You know, when there's multiple uh, car pileup and there's multiple injuries and they all show up at the same time at the emergency ward of a hospital, the mm-hmm. medical doctors in emergency are trained, trained to triage, treat the worst people first, give them the most help first, set the others aside and say, well, look, we'll look after you later, we'll get to you later. You cannot say we're going to treat everybody equally, whether there's some people suffering only small amounts of harm. For sure. So some for people sure. that are in absolutely desperate shape. We've got to start triaging, which is another way of saying we've got to be more make our decisions in our support. Yep. Got to make it. Dr. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. When you get up in the morning, first thing you do, for many of you anyway, I'm guessing, is maybe not even go to the bathroom first. It is go get the coffee started. Go grab your coffee. That is the routine. Well, if that is you, and even if it's not the very first thing, for many of you, it would be second or third, but it's, it's, it's early on in your day. That Java is very important. Brace yourself. Brace yourself because there are reports of some pretty significant problems in the coffee supply chain. Now, they haven't hit North America hard yet, these things, but they could. Brazil is, and I didn't even realize this, Brazil is the world's biggest supplier of coffee. Over 40% of the world's coffee comes from Brazil. Well, as you may have heard, that country is one of the worst hit right now for COVID. It's a disaster. That's not helping the story at all. But there's also a massive shortage, apparently, of shipping containers, coffee shipping containers. That has made it very difficult for that country and for those people there to export the beans everywhere else. So while companies are here, while companies in North America and around the world are producing coffee and selling coffee from the inventory they have on hand, there could be a shortage soon, which is why coffee futures on the stock markets have risen by as much as 24% in the past few months. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. He is known as the food professor. He joins us now. Sylvain, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Of all the things, Sylvain, that I thought might lead someday to price increases in food or food shortages, um, I thought uh, a shipping container or a shortage of shipping containers would not have been on my list. I, you don't, we don't think about the <laughs> supply chain that, or this kind of part of it as an issue, but uh, here we are. Yeah, yeah, it's a big problem. And uh, of course, uh, when there's an imbalance in trades, uh, these things tend to happen. It's not the first time. It does happen from time to time. But uh, right now, when economies aren't in sync, uh, you tend to, well, some people will sell more than they buy. And in order to sell stuff or to buy stuff, you need containers. And so that's why there's a bit of an imbalance right now going on. And uh, and so 
people tend to really underappreciate the importance of logistics. Mm. And uh, and that's really one good example of how logistics can impact or could impact our lives. Now, whether or not we'll actually notice as consumers, I, I don't know. And frankly, I don't think so because uh, global supply chains tend to be quite resilient and they tend to really uh, mitigate well with some of these uh, challenges. And that, and we hope that that's true. And more than anything, I mean, whether or not we see this with coffee, it really, um, it, 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 we don't, as I said, we don't often think about the supply chain and the pieces along it. I mean, if, if prices go up or if there's a shortage of food, we think of drought or war or famine or a surge in demand or something like that. We don't think about all these little pieces along the way that are required for something to get from point A to point B. Absolutely, indeed, and so when you when you think about um, global supply chains, you have to think about well, how products are going to move around, but also how products are actually going to be uh, well boxed, and containers are, are play a huge role. And and around the world, I mean, the container market has been really tight. Uh, and, and the one reason is China. I mean, China basically has had uh, a big say on, 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 the, on the container market over the last few years, and that hasn't changed. COVID has actually made things worse just because China really, again, they're looking at seeing their economy grow 6%, <laughs> whereas North America, we, we we're still trying to figure out what's going to happen over the next 12 months, whether or not our economy is going to grow. So really, uh, right now, uh, China is in the driver's seat while everyone else is hoping for the best. Just Now, this may be really simple. I, I don't know. I may be asking you a question that's so basic that I don't realize it right now, or maybe not, but pick a food. It could be the coffee we're talking about. It could be bananas. It could be whatever. And walk us through the, the, the pieces that are involved in getting that food onto our table. Because again, we think of it, oh, the guy picks the bananas, they put it on a boat, it's in our grocery store, it's on our table. It, it's it, Walk us through actually how many more steps along the way there are for that to happen. Yeah, so, uh, well, if you, let's say that you're um, a coffee grower in, in Colombia. So you pick up your, uh, your grains and <clears throat> you do your harvest. And then, of course, uh, you deal with a, a broker, an agent that will actually sell your product. So you basically get your product to a certain point, and at that point, uh, it gets packaged uh, or processed, I would say, uh, somewhere. And then, of course, it gets shipped away. Then it gets processed again in, in a probably an urban center of some sort. So, so there's added value. There may be some roasting involved. Who knows? And then, of course... Um, all of those products are put in on on uh, on skids, uh, and and those skids are actually shipped to a port, so it can be uh, shipped out. So let's say that you're Loblaw or Metro, you will be dealing with those companies who are roasting and, and providing a finished product uh, that uh, will be sold to your customers. And sometimes it's domestic, and sometimes it's, it's international. And if it's international. Well, the cheapest way to move things around is on a boat. You have the option of, of moving by rail, but rail is, pr- is typically about 10 times the price. 
And uh, on the road, it's even more than that. I don't even think about air. Air is very, very expensive. But you will use air if margins are very high, like lobsters, for example. Canada actually ships uh, lobsters to China. Uh, well, before COVID, it was almost daily from the Halifax airport. Uh, mm. But margins are very high with lobster, and the market in China was willing to pay a lot. With, with coffee, coffee is a very very big commodity so margins are very tight and then you'll go on on ships essentially because well you don't have a whole lot of wiggle room so it takes time but it gets there and once it, it gets, gets there uh, at the port you basically uh, assort and deliver that's basically how it works you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml let's go back to the coffee situation for just a moment and you've made it very clear we may never see any impact of this but this speaks to another problem. These growers back in Brazil, and again, we can apply this to any food that would be facing a similar situation. These growers now have millions of bags worth of coffee that are piling up and no way to move them. And I don't know if coffee beans go bad, but you're still producing coffee beans. At some point, they're going to run out of room to store all this, right? They're going to have to do something with these. Oh, absolutely. The, that's the challenge with uh, global food supply chains. Perishability is a big issue. We're not talking about furniture or car parts here. You need to move things along as quickly as you can. So whenever there's a glitch, uh, it, really, everyone pays. But most importantly, uh, farmers tend to really pay the big price. And, and some of these farmers aren't very rich. They're, they're poor. And they need, uh, they need the revenues, uh, of course. So that's, that's why some of these challenges are, are, are global. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, they'll, they'll figure out a way to sell us the product. I mean, it, it could very well mean that they, they could put some of the crops on, onto a plane and, and, fly, and, fly, uh, to, and fly the product to, to North America. That's quite possible, but it's very, it's very costly. Who's going to absorb the cost? Well, is, uh-huh. is the market, is all of us going to absorb the cost? Are we willing to pay more for our coffee? Well, that's up, that's up to us, right? But most of the time, what ends up happening is, especially when you're dealing with, uh, with uh, developing economies, uh, farmers or companies there tend to be the responsible parties to, to basically offset the extra costs related to freight, unfortunately. But you just highlighted, I think, something that we all know, but we probably don't like to think about. I, I would assume that when something like this happens, the big dealer, not dealers, the um, the brokers, the dealer makes it sound like they're dealing drugs. We're not talking about that. We're talking about coffee, although it is a drug, I suppose. But but the brokers are probably not going to absorb the losses. And Tim Hortons or Starbucks are probably not going to absorb the losses. All of this eventually trickles down and it becomes the farmers who are probably going to pay the price for this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, I mean, some of these companies like Tim Hortons, they don't just buy stuff. Uh, they have contracts. And if you can't uh, honor your contract as a supplier, well, guess who's going to be paying penalties? Not Tim Hortons. And so that's why often when these uh, disruptions occur, uh, costs are absorbed by, uh, by other agents, other nodes in the supply chain. Uh, and it wouldn't impact necessarily consumers in Canada per se, uh, but it will impact farmers that don't necessarily have the means to uh, be able to absorb these things, and, and they and they and their livelihood is is often compromised. So this, yes, this could 
this could be bad news for Canadians, but I actually, the way I see it is that it could actually be bad news for for farmers who rely on harvest to pay their bills. Well, and we saw this in a different way. We saw this for a different reason with the canola oil here. When you don't have the market, that when China decided they weren't going to take it. I mean, this has happened with other foods before, and it always seems to fall on the backs of the farmers because they can't just all of a sudden say, you know what, now instead of being $10 a gallon, we need to make our money. It's $20 a gallon. They don't have that right. They can only get what the brokers and what the companies are willing to pay for, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's, that's the important issue here for, uh, for us to, to think about, uh, other than perhaps uh, uh, think about growing our own coffee right here in Canada. <laughs> the reason, I mean, some people have asked, uh, why don't, aren't we growing our own coffee? Well, it's pretty simple. It's much cheaper to get it elsewhere for now. And coffee is, what, $2 and a half, uh, 100, 100, uh, $100 like a pound or something it's very it's very cheap abroad to actually grow our own in canada it, it would probably end up costing more and the quality wouldn't be as good either and so that's why we do rely on other countries and frankly i don't think they mind because that's how they do business themselves and that's how they grow their economy maybe sylvan maybe we're missing an idea here we we with the cold weather we decided to create ice wine maybe we could create ice coffee Right off the right off the trees, just picking the beans, and we have frozen beans. <laughs> I, the first time I heard cold brew, I thought it was Canadian coffee, <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> Doctor Sylvain Charlevoix, the food professor, always love having uh, having you give us a few minutes of your time. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The NHL found itself, finds itself in a really interesting, uh, uncomfortable position, quite frankly, over the last 24 hours or so. There was a veteran referee, a guy who was just about to retire, in fact. Veteran referee is doing a game the other night, and apparently he was mic'd up and forgot that he was mic'd up, or that his partner was mic'd up. I'm not sure, but one of them had a live microphone nearby. And as he got talking to his officiating partner, he acknowledged wanting to give one of the teams a penalty early on. So he's, he basically says, I'm looking specifically for a reason to penalize that team. Now you can see the problem here in sports where everything is supposed to be absolutely even, absolutely objective. The optics of such a thing look terrible. It looks like you have a referee who's showing favoritism or doing something untoward. Well, as I said, officials are supposed to be perfectly objective, or at least as perfectly objective as a human can be. They're not supposed to be creating something. That becomes the problem. So the referee, the NHL decided today, the referee is no longer going to be doing any more games. He has been fired. The flip side of this, though, is that humans do have subjective subjectivity. We are not purely objective. There is human elements of any official who's doing a game. And I think most people believe, anyone who's watched sports believes that referees will make make-up calls at times or even up calls or decisions based on human instinct that they may not even think they're making. I want to bring in Barry Mano. He's the president and founder of the National Association of Sports Officials. He is a guy who refereed in NCAA basketball for years. Uh, his organization represents thousands of officials in many sports. Barry, always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. You bet, Scott. Good to be with you. So when you hear a story about an official who says this uh, and then gets caught, truly, from an official's point of view, was his mistake looking for an infraction or was it getting caught and saying it out loud? 
Well, I, I want to start by saying, you know, likely <clears throat> this is a, a tragic end to a pretty good career. Absolutely. Um, uh, self-administered, as it turns out. Uh, but with that said, uh, you brought up about objectivity and subjectivity. Our main job is to be impartial. That's job one for us. The idea of makeup calls is really becoming more and more fictionalized, Scott, in all honesty. With all of the technology that's around, referees really are not running around trying to make up calls and, uh, and even things up. That's just not where it's at. You have a situation, possibly in this case, <clears throat> where maybe, I don't know this, I haven't talked to Tim, uh, maybe he felt the call that he made was a bit weak. And in talking to his partner, instead of just saying, you know, I really uh, blew that call, it, it wasn't really there, he said something else to, to the effect, uh, I just wanted to get one early uh, on Nashville, which is what was recorded. So the point is this. Referees go to every contest, and generally they're aware of the environment in which they're going to work. We know if these two teams have had a lot of problems in the past, or there's a particular player or two, or a coach that needs some special attention from us. We're, we're familiar with all that. And we go in there, and it might be that in a particular game, we say to ourselves in the dressing room, in the pregame conference, look, we need to get out there and take care of business tonight right from the get-go. We, we just can't have a long leash because of what has gone on before with these two teams. I think that's not unreasonable. So well, that's how they describe that. That's managing the game, right, Barry? Is that not typically whenever well, officials yeah, talk about I, it? I don't know if it's – I guess, uh, Sky, you, you could call it managing the game. It's just responding and reacting to the conditions that we're presented with. I mean, these two teams met before, and there was a huge brawl, and there's bad blood. What do you think we're going to do as a crew? We're going to go out there. We're not going to lay back and sort of let it unfold. We're going to come out and, and be more on guard, and we're going to be more aggressive – and enforcing the rules and watching for things. I would expect that people want us to do that. Certainly the, the people in charge want us to do that. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, I think that a lot of people would agree. I think most sports fans would agree and would say, look, if a game is chippy and threatening to get out of hand, one way, and we see this in hockey a lot, and probably less in other sports, but in hockey, certainly, if a game is threatening to get out of hand, you give, if there's scrums around the net, you give one guy a penalty on one team, and now everybody is sort of on their best behavior because they're worried they're going to take the penalty that hurts their team. It sends a message, it settles things down a bit. Yeah, that, that that's correct. And, you know, this thing with, with Tim Peel is highly interesting within our own industry. I mean, as an example, the Hollywood Reporter which is a weekly publication which deals with movie making in films. Its lead news item at 10 o'clock this morning was about the Tin Peel incident. What does that tell me? It tells me that sort of throughout the world, people are interested in officials and their impartiality. They want to believe in the outcomes of the games. That's what fans want. That's what paying customers want. And they get that really through us. So we have a high responsibility to be impartial and go out there and do our job without fear or favor and get on with it. And what, when Tim's words were captured, it calls into question 
whether we do that 100% of the time. It, you know, I think you're 100% right about that, that people want that. I think the other thing that made this thing so intriguing for a lot of people is, and I've read this and heard this all day today, the view that, you know, Tim Peel put words to what we all believe has happened in sports forever, that whether it's intentional or whether it's human nature, that as you say, you make a call that maybe is a little weak and you go, oh, I don't want to be the guy deciding the game because I didn't, you know, that wasn't a great call. I think most people who have watched sports believe in the idea that there are makeup calls. And he, and he just that's, said it. That's why, Scott, that's why they're fans. They're not referees. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's why they're fans. What, what can I tell you? You know, we had the same thing back when, when Tim Donaghy, NBA, everybody thought once that story broke, which was a, a, a tragedy for us, it was a nightmare for us in officiating the Tim Donaghy thing. Uh, they, they started to think, well, all the refs are putting bets on games they're working, which is a fiction. It's not true. What, what Tim Peel said is not symptomatic of quality officiating. It's not. He made a mistake. He let his mouth run more than he should, and he's paying a huge penalty for it. There is the human factor, and you touched on this. There is a human factor in being an official. We don't have robots doing games. And I, 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 let me ask you this. If you are doing a game and you've done games in hostile environments with thousands of people screaming at you, you're probably not the most popular guy in the arena at the time when some of the games you were calling. But if you're calling a game as a human being and suddenly notice, you know, I've been making all these calls that I think are bang on, but suddenly the one team has been to the free throw line 25 times and I've just noticed the other team has only been there five times. Is it not mm -hmm. human nature to start looking for ways to balance it out? Not at all. Uh, you know, referees love it when you boo. And I'm being serious here. Good referees are the type of human beings that love it when people boo. I, when I was in front of 16,000 people and they were yelling at me, I just felt good inside because they <laughs> didn't know what I knew. They didn't analyze the play the way I did. So sports officials can be contrarian in that regard. It, it doesn't, we're not trying to even anything out. We, we don't want to walk out of there and everybody had the same number of free throws or, or same penalty minutes on both sides. That doesn't even enter our, our equation at all. But at the end of every game, certainly in the NBA, I don't know if it's the same in college basketball, and I, I assume in the NHL, I don't know, I should know. Um, at the end of every game, you are graded. There, there is a, a person who is monitoring the officials. I think in basketball, that was the result of the Tim Donaghy thing, where now, you know, the, someone's going to come down and go over how you did in that game. Will there not be something said if one team had a vastly disparate, much higher number of fouls or foul opportunities? Would that not be raised? No, all we would do is we'd look at we look at the video, we look at the film. Were the plays there? Were the fouls there? Hey, it is not played the same on both ends of the ice or the court. I used to have coaches yelling, "Barry, call them the same on both ends of the court." And I was, I ran by, I would say, "They're not playing it the same on both ends." What would you like me to do? It's not the same. The defense is different. The offense is different. So no, we don't get downgraded. If there's some disparity in the number of fouls, no, never. Because that's often that's often seen as an indictment. I mean, whether after oh. games, coaches will point yep. it out. They go, "Look, they got the number of penalty minutes we got." That's often seen as an indictment of uh -huh. the officials. And we would say, "How many times did you drive the key versus the other team?" And all these other things. 
we, we can't take that into account. We, we aren't smart enough. We have all we can do to look <laughs> at plays in real time in three dimensions and make a decision based on what our belief is and on our knowledge of the rules. That's it. Now, if we fail at that, we're going to be fired. Or if we go public with certain commentary, which is what just happened, we are going to be fired. There it is. I, I, I Listen, I, I've said for a long time that I agree with your point here that the idea that referees should balance it all out is ludicrous because, you know, there are teams that are built chippier or built rougher or play a different way. And it, it's never made sense to me that at the end of the game, everything should balance out. The score doesn't balance out, so why should the fouls or the penalties balance out? I've never got that. Well, I've never but, had a fan base come up to me and say, you know, our team really had too few fouls tonight. I mean, you guys really need to get after this. <laughs> But it it here's the thing about it, and I went through today, and again, I, I think it has to be human nature. I think. I, I don't know how else to explain it. There's a website. You've probably seen it. It's called scoutingtherefs.com. It looks at NHL referees yeah. and statistics of what they've done. And if you look at penalties of home teams and away teams, of every referee down the NHL, they're almost all within a point or two of 50%. And I, I think to myself, how is that possible? There must be something in the human nature that, whether it's crowd that gets on or whether it's the situation, there must be something that leads to the balance at the end of games then. No, I mean, whatever balance you're talking about would be called the standard. That's something that the NHL, especially under the stewardship of Stephen Walcom, has really worked to have those crew of officials work to the same standard. You standardize what it is you're doing. That, that's all it is. Nobody's out there balancing out anything. It, that's a fiction. What about the, and again, we keep coming back to human element. And, and look, I, I'm a huge supporter in not having robot referees. I, I hate the robot uh, strike and ball call in baseball. I'd rather have an, an umpire back there. And if he blows one, he blows one. I'd rather have the human part. But the one other issue, Barry, that comes into play when you're talking about human beings is that you can end up not necessarily liking somebody who's an athlete or a coach. You can, you know, we've seen at times there seems to be uh, umpires that just don't seem to get along or, you know, with players or whatever else. How do you overcome that? If you're the official, how do you tamp that down when there's a player that you just can't stand who's playing in that game? Takes extraordinary discipline. You're bringing up a really good point that, yes, it is human. You're going to run into certain referees that adhere to the rule book a bit stronger than the next referee who's coming in in three nights. There it is. You're going to have some minor variations in how the game is conducted by certain referees because that's their nature. They're, we call them rule book lawyers, and they're very good at what they do. And other officials don't know the rules quite as good as that person, but they're outstanding as people managers and game managers. There it is. You're never going to get rid of that as long as we have human beings refereeing. To get back to your question, sure, I would work for coaches I didn't like, but there it was. You set it aside, you go do your job, and you leave the arena and move on to the next game. This is business. We're going to take care of business. We're not here to settle scores. We're not here to get one up on anybody. We don't care about that. Let's just go out and work this game to the best of our ability, especially today with all the technology watching every single move we make, everything we say, 
closed mics, open mics, as we've learned, all of that's there monitoring what it is we do. And boy, by and large, to keep getting 90 to 92% of these plays right, game after game after game with all of this pressure, I think is a remarkable accomplishment. We've got a couple more minutes left, and let's get into one other thing that is really, it's certainly related to this, but it's not related to officiating directly. The idea of having officials with open mics, do, do you like the, I mean, everybody wants to open the game so that everyone can see behind the curtain. Uh, this one certainly blew up in an official's face, but do you generally like the idea of allowing the referees and their discussions and their decision-making to be heard? Or do you think, no, no, this is one of those things that should remain kind of out of the view and let them just do their thing quietly? I think we have to properly define the boundaries of that openness. I think sports is part of theater. And as part of the theater, we're, we're an important aspect of that. So I think certain things we do can be monitored, and that's just fine. But as an example, let's say trying to put open mics over at the bench during the NCAA tournament when the officials need to go over there, the three of them, and have a discussion on something. I, I think you need to let the officials have open conversation and communication between themselves without anything being broadcast. We have to be able to level with each other and say, this is what I saw then we can render a decision. So there's times that it's okay to have us mic'd up, and to me there's other times that good management would preclude having us open mic'd. On the flip side, how much less abuse would you take if all the coaches in the sidelines were mic'd up? <laughs> and they knew it. No less. No really? Less. <laughs> there are coaches. No. Coaches, they would pull some of their punches. They wouldn't say all oh. the same things to hey, you by guys. By the way, Scott, that's very nice of you, but how many coaches do you know are going to permit that? Come on. No. Well, no, I because didn't say it was going to happen. Yeah, they want to <laughs> speak their minds. They have opinions, and, and good referees can handle all that. Good referees and good coaches get along just fine, even though the ocular on TV sometimes is very rough and gritty fundamentally good referees and good coaches get along just fine. It is a fast, I mean, it's an unfortunate story because uh, Tim Peel, who was the NHL referee, I mean, he did have a really good career and he was about to retire in about a month and it's unfortunate yeah. how this has gone down, but it is truly a fascinating story that has a lot of people talking with a lot of different points of view. Barry Mano, again, the president of the National Association of Sports Officials. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking some time today. You bet, Scott. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.